Uh, hi, I'm Matt Stanley. I'm the Children's Minister here at Dapto Anglican and uh, bringing to our Bible reading for today. Uh, we're in 2 Kings. Uh, today we're reading from chapter 4 and uh, we're looking at Elisha and how he continues on uh, the ministry uh, as a prophet. And so please uh, let me read for us. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbours for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Well, we're in our Next Step series. In the first week, it was Next Steps in Mission. And we saw that our mission is to reflect a great and awesome God. And it doesn't matter how simple or how small we are, God's greatness can shine through. And so an unnamed servant girl who's away from her people, away from her land, manages to reflect something of God's love and compassion. And the most powerful general in the region confesses that Israel's God is the only God. Last week, we looked at next steps in discipleship. And we saw that for all of us, our leadership our area of ministry where we're serving, that's going to come to an end and we have to pass the baton on to somebody else. We are disciples who make disciples who are capable of making other disciples. Well, today we're going to look at finances. Next steps in terms of trusting God and his providence. And we're going to do that once again through some stories from Elisha. So let me pick it up with the first story, and there's actually four in this chapter. I'm kind of excited about today. I've preached, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 uh, talks like this. Never have I been into this passage, and there's four stories, and they've all got something powerful to say. Here's the first. It's about the wife of a man who um, the husband is a prophet, and the husband dies, and she owes money, and the creditors are coming to take her two boys as slaves. And Elisha says, how can I help you? What do you have in your house? And she says, I've got nothing except a small jar of olive oil. Well, she goes to her neighbours, give me all your jars. She's got a whole pile of jars lined up. She starts pouring and all the jars become full of oil. And Elijah says, go sell it and then you'll be fine through the rest of the famine and you can pay off your debts. Wow, fascinating little story. In fact, it has echoes of Elijah and the widow that he blesses. But what's going on in this story? Well, 
Firstly, notice that the woman is a spouse of a prophet. And I take it he's a good prophet because she has some kind of a, a working relationship, a knowledge of Elisha. And Elisha appears to be conscious and, and fond of her husband. So here's, you know, somebody who's a friend of the bishop, something like that, right? But you know what? Despite the fact that the husband's a good guy, that he served faithfully and, and hard in mission, this is no guarantee that she and her sons won't come into difficult times. In fact, they come into very difficult times and it looks like the sons are going into slavery. The man of God who served God, somehow that hasn't translated into God honouring and providing for his widow and sons. And it gets to the point where she actually has to cry out for help. And she calls out to God or God's prophet and Elisha helps. And part of the assistance comes not just from the prophet, but from the community around her. And, and there's this beautiful symbolism of them providing vessels and God's blessing can be poured into her vessels and into her neighbor's vessels. And she pours jar after jar when the oil should have ran out. There's something here about a continuous act of faith, pouring and pouring and pouring long after the oil should have ceased to flow. And the point of the story, God provides enough. But he provides when we need it. We might feel like we're in trouble, things are about to go to the wall, but in this story, God comes through. A second story. One day, Elisha went to Shunem. And there's a woman there, she's well-to-do. Uh, and um, whenever Elijah, Elisha came through that region, he stopped to eat at her place. And so this woman says to her husband, hey, this is a holy man of God, let's make a room for him. And we're going to put a bed, table, chair, and a lamp in the room. Whenever he comes by, he can stay with us. This is a, an independent woman who has wealth, who has finances at her disposal. She can decide just to whack an extension on the roof and to, to furnish it and provide for the, God of, for the man of God. She, she's not in financial need. She's also a woman of spiritual insight. She recognises Elisha as a man of God and she wants to use her generosity and her practical disposition to serve and to provide for him. Well, the story continues. Elisha says to this woman, hey, you've gone to a lot of trouble for us, for, for my servant and I. What can we do for you? Can we speak to the king or the commander of the army? And, and she says, hey, I have a home amongst my own people. She says, I'm fine. I, I don't particularly have any needs. Well, Elisha asks his servant, what can we do for her? And he says, she has no son and her husband is old. And then Elijah says to the woman, about this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. Well, we get some more details. This woman appears to be younger than her husband. And her husband is aging, perhaps no longer capable of generating offspring, close to death. And so this woman is at some risk. Potentially, she's going to be what we might call a spinster. And it might be difficult for her to provide for herself and to be safe. And so she has a need that money just can't buy. And when Elisha says, what can we do for you? She doesn't name that need up. She, she 
has this care for others. She's caring for Elisha, but she doesn't speak up about her own needs. And Elisha hears from his servant what her needs are. She doesn't ask, and, and Elisha promises her a son. Well, this raises a fascinating question. How come in the first story, the widow has to ask before she receives? But here we have a, a younger wife who doesn't ask, and yet God is going to provide. And contrast her with Hannah. Hannah goes to the temple year after year and prays that she might have a son, and finally she becomes the mother of Samuel. So what's going on? One story you need to pray, next story you don't need to pray. So should we pray, or does God know our needs before we pray and therefore we don't need to pray? You know, I think part of the reason we struggle with this question is because we read the Bible as if we're looking for principles. What's a forever principle? What's a precedent, you know? And so when you pray this way, say these words, do it this often, God must hear you, God's going to respond, and you will receive because you have asked. And we're looking to find these biblical principles and upon those principles build some certainty. And, and these two stories combined tell us actually it doesn't work that way. The Bible isn't so much full of precedents that we can kind of follow and manipulate, but it's full of incidents. It's full of descriptions of things that just happen. And, and it's not that if we follow them exactly, we'll get what they got. But in this story, what we see is that God knows the generous heart and the unspoken needs of this younger woman, and he provides for her. Well, she has a child. The child grows. One day goes out with his father, who's in the fields, and he says, Father, my head, my head. And his father says to a servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he dies. And the woman went up to him, laid him on the bed in Elisha's room, shut the door, went out. She called her husband and said, please send one of the servants and a donkey so I can go and get Elisha. Wow, what happens here? Again, there's echoes of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath that he cares for because her son dies and she heals, she, uh, uh, he heals her son. This son dies too, without any apparent cause. He's just out and his head starts to hurt. And the poor mother has to sit there and nurse him while he fades and passes. And then she hides him away in Elijah's room. Perhaps she doesn't want to uh, upset other people or disturb the household. Or perhaps she doesn't want to accept the fact that uh, he's, go he's, he's gone and she doesn't want to make it public. And then she goes and she seeks out Elijah. And this is what she says. Did I ask for a son? Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? And Elijah, Elisha says to his servant, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff and run. Don't stop. Don't greet anyone and put my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Wow, I've heard those words before, haven't we? Remember last week, Elisha saying those words to Elijah? And now this woman is saying those words to Elisha. Fine, send your servant back with your rod, with your staff, but I'm staying with you. 
Well, Gehazi goes on ahead, lays the staff on the boy's face. No response. So Gehazi goes back, meets Elijah and says, the boy has not awakened. And when Elisha reaches the house, there was the boy dead on his couch. Elisha goes in, shuts the door, prays to the Lord, got on the bed, lays on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hand to hands. And as he stretched himself out, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away, walked back, and then stretched over the boy once more. And the boy sneezed seven times and opens his eyes. Well, a nice ending, but let's not overlook the emotional roller coaster ride for the mum. I didn't ask for a son, you gave me a son, my hopes were fulfilled, and now my son dies? How painful is that? Why did she have to go through that? Why did she have to endure that terrible season? Elisha then sends his servant ahead, but it doesn't work. The staff doesn't heal. And Elisha lays on the boy and in the process mirrors exactly the way that Elijah healed the boy of the widow of Zarephath. And the boy is healed. And then the boy must be laid on twice and we read that he gets up and sneezes seven times. Well, some fascinating facts. What's going on in this story? Well, I think the big point here is that this miracle is doing something similar to the miracle of the cloak that separates the waters. This miracle is primarily identifying Elisha as a prophet who has the spirit of Elijah. And so the providing for a widow, the healing of, her son, of a son, although it's a different son in this instance, um, it just echoes the greatness of Elijah. And unfortunately, a mother has to suffer so that Elisha can be honoured. And you don't need to be a mum who's seen your child suffer to kind of ask the obvious question, well, that's kind of annoying. So a mum has to watch her son die simply so that Elisha can be honoured? That doesn't make any sense. How is that fair? And the answer is, God doesn't exist to take all your pain away and to just bless you. Sometimes there are greater things afoot. There are greater purposes than just you avoiding pain and experiencing pleasure. Remember that Israel exists and God's people exist to honour God. That is our highest calling. And in the process of this mum losing and then having her son return to her, she is able to somehow be an extra in the story of the man of God being honoured and behind that God being honoured. And that's a beautiful role that she gets to play. Painful, but beautiful. Behind this, God's answers are connected to the attitude of his children. God's seen the heart, the generosity, the concern that this woman has for the man of God. And God honours that and heals her son. Two final observations about this story. Here's one. Why does Elisha lay on the boy? And, and I think it has something to do with the fact that 
There was a belief that Elisha's body warmth could somehow warm the body of the boy and, and bring him back to life. And I think what we can take out of this is that Elisha is both using what is believed to be best practice medicine and care, and he's praying. And I want to say to you, those two go together as well. It's not a lack of faith to go to the doctor or to go to the emergency department. God works through medicine. He works through doctors. He works through healers just as he answers prayer. There's the first thought. Now, the last question. So what about the twice and, and the, the seven sneezes? And the answer is, I don't know. I think they're just random bits that are there to give us the sense that this is a real story. Something happened. Somebody didn't make this up. And this creates a real dilemma for us as readers of the Bible and interpreters of the Bible. Because in a minute, I'm going to focus on the word famine and say that word famine is important. Last week, the fact that there were 42 boys was important. And yet this week, the fact that there are seven sneezes appears to mean nothing. How does that kind of work? That's the joy of reading the Bible, is that it's God's word. And, and we need the leading of the Spirit, and we need the check and the balance of shared interpretation to make sure that we don't run off with some crazy ideas and overinterpret what are just some interesting features of the text that don't necessarily carry meaning. Well, back to our story. And now we get a third story about resources and God's providence. Elijah returns to Gilgal, there's a famine, and the famine indicates that the region is under a curse because of disobedience. And there's a company of prophets there, and Elisha is going to cook them a large pot, a stew. And while he's doing that, somebody grabs some herbs that are bitter and poisonous and throws them into the pot. And when the stew was poured out, they began to eat it, and they cried out, man of God, there's death in the pot, and they can't eat it. And Elisha says, get some flour, puts it into the pot, serve it up to the people, and now there's nothing harmful in the pot. What a crazy story. What are you thinking when you hear that story? Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, this sounds like African black magic. And that's precisely what you're meant to think. The point of this story is that somehow the poison, the bitter herbs or whatever they are, um, God's magic is more powerful than the magic of the evil one, than the person who is trying to undermine the feeding of God's people. You see, there's a famine in the region that implies judgment, and, and this judgment impacts the godly and the ungodly. Uh, perhaps it's possible that the summer bushfires have something to do with the fact that we're not caring for God's environment as we ought to, and if that's true, then when bushfire comes, it burns down the Christian's house and the non-Christian house. In, in that sense, often fire is indiscriminate. And that's what's going on here. Everybody's struggling, but God's going to provide through Elisha a pot of stew for all of the prophets. But that's not a good look. Satan's unhappy about the prophets being fed when everybody else is starving. And so he's working through someone, someone on the inside. Isn't that often the case? Our enemies are often on the inside. It's, it's one of the 12 who betrays Jesus. It's at the end of Paul's letters where he talks about the opposition that comes from someone in the church, false teachers from inside the church. 
uh, and that it can be the case today too. Well, someone here is doing Satan's bidding and poisons the stew and yeah, the, the, the power of God is stronger to cleanse and to heal the stew than is the power of Satan. Spiritual warfare is being played out over God's capacity to provide for his servants. And Elisha adds flour, and in ancient times, flour is carbs. Flour gives you energy and strength so that you can go out and do God's work. Isn't that a cool kind of story? We'll come back to that. A couple of reflections. God provides for his own in difficult times. Sure, the famine impacts everyone, but God provides for his own. Some will oppose us, and that happens in difficult times. Uh, people can often be generous uh, in good times or in a very short season, like a bushfire, we're generous. But when things get really difficult, you know, we rush and we hoard toilet paper just for ourselves. And that may happen too. When we're doing God's work, some may oppose us. But we can trust that God is more powerful and God uses an attack as an opportunity to cleanse and enhance. And his name is again honoured. All right, last story. A man comes, brings 20 loaves of barley. It's been baked from the first grain. And Elisha gives it to the people. Now God is providing not just for his prophets, but for everyone. But there isn't enough bread to go round. And so the servant says, well, how can I give this little bread to 100 men? And Elisha answered, give it to the people and eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. And so the bread is multiplied. No fish, but the bread is multiplied. Heard this story before? Kind of cool story, isn't it? There's a precedent. Elisha is once again foreshadowing Jesus. A couple of quick features. A man brings his first fruits or his first grains. He's meant to, if he's in the north, bring it to Bethel to the golden cow temple or to the one in the north at Dan, but he doesn't. Instead, he brings it direct to the man of God. That implies that there's an offering that's being made here, a tithe. And God uses the tithes to bless others and to feed the masses. And God's blessing is such that he can take a little offering and turn it into food for a lot of people and even more. And here Elisha is foreshadowing Jesus and the way that he will bless and feed those who come and hear his words. All right, let me pull this together and offer some reflections. What's going on over these four stories? Here's the first thing I want to say. Just like the last story where the guy brings his first fruits or first grains to God, we too are still called to bring our first fruits to God. Tithing's mentioned in the Old Testament, and I think it's just assumed in the New Testament. It sort of turns up in a couple of stories, um, and, and Jesus doesn't criticise the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for tithing. He says, you should do that and be concerned about other things. So I think we are still called to step out in faith and bring our first fruits, because that's a risky thing to do, to give your first fruits when you don't know what's going to happen with the second lot of the crop. Will locusts come? Will a storm come? But still give your first to God. And what happens is God takes our small first fruit offerings and uses those to multiply and bless the masses. Isn't that beautiful? But God takes your offering and allows you to experience the joy of seeing others being blessed by your provisions. And I want to say to you, 
That is a deeper joy than you keeping it and spending it on yourself. Third, the act of giving is spiritual warfare. Finances are a spiritual battlefield and they have been for ages. What's going on here? Remember, in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, people are worshipping gods and they believe that the gods provide the rains, that the gods uh, cause the crops to grow. And that's why the Egyptians worship the Nile. That's why in Acts 13, when Paul is preaching to the farmers at Lystra and Derbe, he says, God causes the rains to fall and your crops to grow, right? That's what spirituality is about. And here, in these four stories, God is providing. He's providing for a woman who's about to have her son sold into slavery. He's providing for another woman who has money, but she needs something money can't buy. She needs the healing of her son. He's providing for prophets in a time of famine, and he's providing for the masses out of tithes and offerings. And God is in the business of providing, and he's saying, trust me, give me your first fruits. I will provide for others. I will care for you. And the temptation is, no, I need to hoard up. I need to save. That was the spiritual battle that's taking place in the ancient Near East. If you trust God, God will provide for his people. When you don't trust God, there will be famine. But I don't think that's the spiritual battle as we experience it, as we frame it, as we understand it. Uh, we don't think that God's going to not cause the rains to come and the crops will fail and I'm going to starve. Although we ought to, God still is the hand that gives and he's still the hand that can choose to hold back if he wishes. Um, and somehow we think because we have a regular employer who provides us a paycheck that that's not coming from God and that's not uh, trusting God and recognising his hand behind all of that. We, we, we ought to change our way of thinking. God, of course, is behind all of that. He can provide through an employer just like he can provide through rains. But here's where I think the spiritual battlefield is mostly for us as 21st century Westerners, right? We have this notion that our money is ours. It's our hard-earned. We've worked for it. We want to see it well used. We are economic rationalists. And when we see the church take our hard-earned money and spend it in ways that we think is unwise, we get bitter. And we think, you know what? I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to give. If they can't use it properly, then they don't deserve my hard-earned money. It's my right to decide where it goes. And I want to say to you that thinking is the words of the enemy. That's a spiritual battle that's being played out in that dialogue. Because possessions, because the fruits of the earth aren't yours, they're God's. And God asks you to steward them so that you can bless others, so that he can provide for you, so that you can trust him and not your possessions. And when we get this economic rationalist mindset that says it's mine and I'm in control, then, then we've turned the tables. And we think, well, if I use it wisely, then I can provide for me and for others. But it's God who's the provider. It's not us. And there are often times we have needs where money can't buy our needs either. And so I think we need to lose that economic rationalist way of thinking. You know what? If you give to the money to the church and the church doesn't use it well, who cares? It's not your problem. You're just called to give. Let's flip that for a minute. Just imagine if God 
watched you and every time you did something that he thought was unwise with the resources he gave you, he said, you know what, next week I'm going to dock your pay and give you a little bit less. How's that going to go? God gives generously to you and to me. How astutely we happen to use it. And the very act of giving is a spiritual act that says, God, I trust you. God, I want to bless others. God, I don't live for this stuff. It doesn't own me. You own it. And I want to give some of it back to you. And I want to use this to see your kingdom grow. And whether or not it's used wisely, that's not the point. The act of giving is a spiritual act of trusting God. We're invited to trust and to pour beyond logic. Just like the widow who pours and keeps pouring past the point where the oil should have run out but continues to give and to give and to give. That is what we're called to be like. To be generous and overflowing in the way that God has been generous to us. And part of our generosity is an area in which we are reflecting the character of God. And you know what? We need to do that, even though at times the cupboard may be bare, just like the woman in the first story. There's no guarantees that just because you're giving, you're going to have this nice, healthy bank balance and you can see where the next offering is going to come from. That's why they're called first fruits. And we may even find ourselves in places where we need to cry out and say, God, we've given everything and, and now we're at risk. But that isn't an excuse not to give and to trust and to be generous. And in all of these stories, God provides for a woman in trouble. God provides for a person who has finances, but other needs God provides, needs that money can't buy. God provides for those who are serving and God provides for the masses. He causes the crowds to be fed. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's part of God being generous to all of his creatures. And in the process, when God provides, what happens? It's God who is honoured. And our part in being generous is to reflect God's generosity to us so that people say, what an amazing, loving, generous God you serve. He is a God that is worth knowing, worth following. We are here to reflect his greatness and his goodness. And when we do that, God will be honoured. So friends, four stories about God's provision. I don't know your individual circumstances. Perhaps you're like the first lady. You're in great need and you need to cry out and you can trust that God will be faithful and will provide for you. Perhaps you're like the second lady and you might have cash in the bank, but you have other needs. And if we are generous, then God cares for us and God provides in ways that meet our needs, even if our needs aren't financial. Perhaps you're like the fourth person and you're just simply bringing your first fruits, but you're able to experience the joy of God taking the little that you have and multiplying that and seeing many being blessed and God being honoured. Or perhaps 
your experience is more like that of the third story. And you realize that finances is a battlefield for spiritual warfare. And at times you find yourself persuaded by the lies of Satan, thinking that somehow I can spend my money the best. And if I keep some of it for myself and experience the things that make me happy, that that will fill my tank. Well, we need to name those lies up for what they are and we need to step out in faith and we need to give generously. We need to pour beyond when we expect that the resources are there and we need to trust. And when we step out in faith and when we reflect God's goodness and God's generosity, then he provides for us, he cares for us and his power overcomes the work of the evil one and his provisions are richer and stronger and they equip us with the spiritual carbs we need to go out and to do his will. So where is your trust this week? Is it in your bank balance? Is it in your capacity to manage? Or are you stepping out trusting in God? Are you going to reflect God's generosity and are you going to bless others with the things that God has allowed you to steward.